0: So last time in our last message, we were talking about leadership within God's kingdom and threatened to continue that this time, and I'm going to make good on that threat. In 1 Timothy, we have, at least in my Bible, there's a title of this, A couple of titles for different sections, one is called Qualifications for Bishops, the other one is Qualifications for Deacons. In our structure we have in our official body both deacons and ministers and bishops or elders. And I suppose that an argument could be made that our position of minister is without biblical precedent. But I think there's a practical aspect to this that is recognized by the church and long has because, at least in part, because we have an unpaid ministry. And because of that, our bishops or elders are oftentimes called upon to carry out duties that are quite time-consuming and to give them some leeway in other aspects of the church for preaching by relieving them at times of that uh, burden as well. As Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy He gives him instructions about what to look for in a leader. And if Timothy knew Paul as he did, he knew some things to look for in a leader. And we talked about that last time, the things that Paul exhibited in his own ministry, in establishing churches, in traveling around, evangelizing, in writing letters, in taking upon himself the burden of correction of people within those congregations that he established, and even writing letters to groups of people who were believers that he had never met. And Paul had a lot going on. And yet at times, he didn't even take remuneration from some of the groups because he felt it would stand in the way of what he was trying to accomplish within that group. And I think we see in what he talks to Timothy and Titus about, as we're going to reference a little later, we see in Paul an example of what he's talking about when he talks to Timothy and it gives him instructions for those who would aspire to or who would be called by the church to be leaders within the kingdom. So I want to read in 1 Timothy the third chapter. And we're going to read... I think we're going to stop at the seventh verse for now. Um, I'm guessing that we won't have time to go beyond that, but we'll take that as it comes. This is a true saying. Paul said, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So as Paul tells Timothy, uh, he's he's not only instructing him, uh, but I believe he intended for Timothy to pass this on to the people under his care, that they would have an understanding of what God expects within the leadership of his church. And we know that Paul gives a... Um, an instruction elsewhere in Ephesians about, or in Corinthians rather, about the headship in the church, the headship within the kingdom. And he likens the church to the bride of Christ. He calls it the bride of Christ. We understand that we're collectively the bride of Christ, the body of Christ as well. There's so many uh, ways in which these parallels are made in order to instruct us as to the relationship between God and Christ and man and the church and the body that we collectively make up. So we understand these things from the biblical or the uh, the scriptural standpoint to to understand that, uh, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the head of man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. And he gives that order of headship kind of as so that we might understand that God is a God of order. And God has placed the responsibility of leadership upon certain individuals or certain entities within those uh, bodies that make up the organizations or the organisms that He has established on the earth. One of those organisms is the family. And it's very a very important aspect. In fact, it is integral to God's plan for mankind on earth. He gave... Eve to Adam so that they would have a family. And the, all the families of the earth as they are derived from that first union are in and of themselves the, an organism upon which God places great emphasis. But He also established the body of the church for a very specific purpose. And within that body, in just like in the family and even in civil government, he gives responsibilities to individuals that they might carry out his purpose within that organism. He talks uh, the, the 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 scripture talks about how God is, sets up those whom he will and he takes down those whom he will, speaking of authorities within civil government. And I believe that we can look at that picture, that template, and say that God uses that template within not only the civil authority. Uh, in the kingdoms of the world, but he also uses a similar template within the family and within the church. And so as Paul talks about this uh, to Timothy, he gives these qualifications as we uh, might title them. But what he's looking for is men who are of character, men who have certain traits. Uh, you can call some of them even personality traits if you'd like. But we have to remember that all of us have personalities. All of us have personality traits. Some of us have to learn certain personality traits in order to be qualified for certain things within those organisms that God gives to us. Husbands and fathers. We have to learn certain traits in order to be successful as husbands and as fathers, right? Not all of them are inherent to us and, and, and different of us, depending on how our personalities and character makeup are. We have to learn certain traits to be good husbands to our wives and we're instructed that we need to love our wives. If it came natural to us to automatically love our wives, that is to give to them the due benevolence and help and affection and endearments that we should, then we wouldn't need to be instructed to do that, would we? And likewise, wives, they're instructed to honor their husbands. Why? Because it comes natural to them to love them, but not necessarily to honor them. That's why we have to be instructed. So when Paul talks about these qualifications of leadership, he's saying to us in the same vein, look, Not all men have all of these qualities and characters inherently. It is a learned behavior in many respects that we we behave in certain ways. We have to learn as children not to punch our brothers in the nose or pull our sister's hair or steal things from them and on and on and on. These are not natural to them because if we just give them their head, they will do what comes natural, which is to be in constant conflict, to take and not give, to be self-centered and selfish and not selfless, right? And so as Paul is talking about these character qualities in leaders, he's saying that some of these might come naturally to some of us, but others of them are learned traits. I think we need to keep that in mind. We need to learn the value of some of these things. And in order to do that... We have to have a certain uh, intention to carry these things out. They are somewhat learned behaviors. So keep that in mind as we go along. Qualifications for bishops, because as we see this, qualifications, we somehow get the idea that we're looking for a man who automatically already has all of these qualifications. If we did that, we would never put anybody in leadership right? We wouldn't because we have to learn some of these things. We have to learn some of these things. So Paul says, this is a true saying. And I want to start off with this. And if my phone would quit going to sleep where I took my notes, I can keep me in line here. A bishop. This is a true saying. He said, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desire the good thing. Well, we have no text that talks about our modern-day Anabaptist minister position, okay? But we do put people into the elders' or bishops' office, usually from the minister's office. And so I'm going to equate the two. I think it's legitimate. I'm going to equate the two. And I believe that if you want to look at it this way, you could say that the minister's office, as they have the responsibilities as outlined in our paperwork as the Dunker Brethren Church, you can easily see that uh, their responsibilities and qualifications are sort of a subset of those of bishops. Okay? So I'm going to approach it from that standpoint and just equate the two for the purposes of this message. And Paul says it is a true saying if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now how how would the natural man read that? I think we would naturally read that as if uh, a man desires the office of a bishop, he's doing a good thing by desiring that office, right? Is that how we would might read that? I want to parse that a little, a little more closely because I beg to differ. A bishop is a superintendent of the church, and a minister in our practice is the office from which bishops are selected And so it is not a stretch to apply these qualifications to the officer of a minister. So in verse 1, where we say a good, or Paul says a good work, I want to first define work. (laughs) That's amazing to me. Sometimes we have to define words like this. But because we conflate certain things, we sometimes misread certain things as well. Work means, believe it or not, to toil or to labor. So Paul is not saying if you desire the office of a bishop, you're desiring a good office. He says you're desiring a good work. That's toil. That's labor. Okay. So let's get that straight first of all, because I think it's important. Because if we look at it as desiring the office, we have a very self-focused, uh, a very self, self-focused focus on what this means. He desireth a good office? No, he desireth a good work. All right? It is not a feel good term for position or office or generically thing. If he desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. You know, we say that as an expression. He desires a good thing. It's this, you know, nebulous thing that he's desiring and it's good. And so, therefore, it's good to desire that. back up a minute. This is toil. Okay. This is work. He desireth a good work. And the word good, does that mean it's inherently good in and of itself? It is an inherently good thing. This work, this toil. No, it's not. Think about it for a minute. It denotes, the word work denotes literal toil or manual labor, and good means virtuous for use, not an intrinsic worth. If you look it up in the Greek, it doesn't have the meaning of intrinsic virtue. All right? It is virtuous for use. So let me, let me put it this way. When done right, the work has value in that the labor put in by the bishop develops value based on the work's results. I think Paul is saying here, look, Timothy, you have to recognize that if men want to be bishops, they have to understand that they are taking upon themselves a responsibility, which they might later regret because of the amount of work involved. And it's not a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing because if they're doing it for selfish reasons, it's going to turn south. I guarantee you it'll turn south. Because if you have bishops or elders who are not in their place in that headship order when Christ is not their head, when they're looking out for themselves instead of the flock, they're not shepherds. And it's going to turn south. When done right, the work has value in that the labor put in by the bishop develops value based on the work's results. Now, I don't want to try to to claim this morning that what Paul is saying here is that the only reason that someone uh, should, should desire the office of a bishop is because they might be able to do something good. But I'm saying that's a large part of it. Acts twenty twenty eight. take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. And I put this in caps because I couldn't underline it or make it in bold on my phone. But to feed the church of God. What does Paul or what does who was that Peter that said that maybe it was Paul it was Acts 20. So it was Paul to feed the church of god. Okay, let's let's go back and parse that sentence again real quickly. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all, all the flock over which the holy ghost hath made you overseers, so he's talking about bishops or elders, over which the holy ghost hath made you overseers to feed the flock or to feed the church of god which he hath purchased with his own blood. Christ owns it. He's put elders or bishops in a place of responsibility over it for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? To feed the flock of God. Not to beat them into submission. Not to force their own will on them. Not to get some sense of gratification out of them because they're over them. But to feed the flock of God. That's what bishops do. And that may take many different uh forms. and we'll, we'll look at some of that a little bit later in what paul tells timothy here but to feed the church of god which he hath purchased with his own blood and so we have to see that in its proper context and understand that what god is what what what, what uh i believe paul was saying there is that there is a purpose for the position there is a purpose for the office. There is a purpose for the calling. And it is the calling to feed the flock of God in all the various forms that feeding means or takes. So, in other words, desiring the office is desiring to bless the church, the body of Christ, by laboring within it to its good, not to his own ego or to his own satisfaction or to his own desire and will and direction. It does not mean that aspiring to position for the sake of appearances, power over people, or control of the agenda is intrinsically a good thing. That is not what that first verse means. Verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. That's... That's a that's a mouthful. A bishop then must be blameless. Blameless in the Greek, if you look it up, you know what blameless means? It means not arrested. (laughs) It's like that's kind of a low bar to meet, right? About any of us would meet that bar. But it has obviously an extended meaning uh, in the Greek as well as in English. Blameless simply indicates the person is not culpable. That means he is not rebukable. That means that there are not things over which he needs to be reprimanded and rebuked. That obviously gives quite a bit of leeway. But But he starts off, he says that's the basic level of qualification. The basic level of qualification is that he must be blameless. He's not rebukable. We can't take him to task for character flaws or for uh, even oversights, carelessness about aspects of his life. And we automatically think of moral issues. Does he handle money well? Uh, Does he... Does he does he strive in his relationships with others to bless them? Or is he quarrelsome and so forth? And Paul talks about those things in these verses. So let's go on. And, and but b- before we go on, does Paul imply that we may have people in the body which are rebukable, but perhaps unrebuked? He kind of does, doesn't he? Because he says, look among you for these character traits in a person, these moral aspects when you look for leadership. He first must be blameless. I guess by negative uh, inference, we could say that there are those who are unrebuked, but are rebukable and would thus be disqualified. So the second aspect of this, the husband of one wife. My understanding of this would be that even in Jewish society at that time, their society kind of reflected our godless society as well as our Christian society today. Divorce is a very common thing, and it was a very common thing and Paul is setting a standard for this. He said people and 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 this is I think reading into this, but Paul is saying. Look, divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage, just moving from person to person and so forth and so on. This is a disqualifying aspect of someone's character because it shows what? It shows that he can't get along with his own wife. It shows that he can't forge a marriage that, that is one that lasts. And if he can't do that, then perhaps he's disqualified. there are all sorts of things that we can unpack from that as well it takes two right a wife can pick a fight with her husband a wife can become dissatisfied a wife can do all of these things and in in many states they have no fault divorces you know we're not going to point the blame to anybody you want a divorce here here's a divorce go find somebody else it's not a standard within the church So, um, a husband of one wife, he says. Vigilant is the next word that he uses. Vigilant. Vigilant means circumspect or sober. Circumspect or sober. And contrast that with the next word sober means of a sound mind, self controlled and moderate. So the words that he uses and the way that the King James translates those kind of, we we may transpose them sometimes, but basically those two words are very similar where vigilant means circumspect and sober, and sober means of a sound mind, self-controlled, moderate, understanding, having a perspective uh, on life and on his role in the church and on the church itself and upon his relationship with the Lord and so forth and so on. If you go to Titus, um Titus one seven, I want to read that verse because Paul weighs in on to, to Titus as well regarding this. In one seven he says And and he gives some of the same qualifications for leadership. Blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, and so forth and so on. And in verse 7 he says, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, and so forth. So Paul reiterates that blamelessness Uh, irreproachability, and he elaborates a little bit. He says, as the steward of God, as the steward of God, he gives this as a reason that he must be blameless as the steward of God. That is, he is accountable to God for the work and toil that God calls him to. All right, so as the steward of God, as Paul elaborates here, means that he is accountable to God. He will give answer. Paul, in or the writer of the Hebrews, whoever wrote the Hebrews, uh, verse 17 of chapter 13, writes, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. As they that must give account, again, what he echoed before in Titus, as they that must give account to who? To the Lord. They're giving account of themselves and the work and the toil that they do within the kingdom of God in their relationships with people, in their carrying out of their responsibilities and duties, in their preaching, in their teaching, in their counseling, in their guidance. They must give an account to the Lord. And and the writer of the Hebrews says, keep that in mind in your relationship with them because they are going to have to give an account of themselves to the Lord just as we are individually, but they are going to give account not only for themselves individually, but for the work that they did among you. Therefore, submit yourselves to them. He said, as they, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they might do it with joy and not grief. In other words, he's saying cooperate with them. Cooperate with them in this whole thing of the body of Christ. Cooperate with them. Recognize who you are before God. Recognize that you have been bought with a price. Recognize that you too will give an account of your life to the Lord someday. And this is one of the things that He's going to call us each one an account to. What was our relationship with the leadership that He put over us? We're going to be called into account of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to be called into account in our relationship with the leaders in the church. We're going to be called to account for our relationships with our wives and our children and our neighbors. So he said cooperate with them that they may give an account of themselves in what they have done and they might do it with joy and not grief. What gives a leader grief? A godly leader. What gives them grief? As Paul writes to the different Uh, churches and so forth, he he sometimes says to them, it gives me great joy to see the way that you're carrying out your relationship with Jesus Christ. It gives me great joy to know that you're pressing on. It gives me great joy to know that you believe the Gospel. It gives me great joy that you are propagating the Gospel not only in your families, not only in your congregations, not only in your families and congregations, but in the, the community around you. It gives me great joy as a father seeing his children. And he and, and the writer of the Hebrews, whether it was Paul or somebody else, said that they might do it with joy and not grief. And I think if surely if it was Paul, he certainly understood. You think it gave Paul great joy to have to write 1 Corinthians? I don't. I don't think it gave him great joy to write either one of those letters. The first letter to tell them what they needed to do in order to correct sin within their congregation. And the second letter to have to defend himself for doing so, essentially. But he says something in this verse in Hebrews. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they, number one, watch for your souls. They watch for your souls. In other words, a bishop, an elder, is going to watch for your souls. They're going to be on the alert. They're going to care about your position before God and where you're at in your spiritual journey. They're going to watch for your souls to try to head off those directions which take you away from the Lord, in which you're fooling yourselves, in which you're being deceived by Satan. They watch for your souls. They give account. They're going to give account. That's what they also do. That might be later, but it also might be now. There are times when we have to give account for for decisions that we make, for directions that we take, for messages that we preach, and so forth and so on. They will give account. That's what an elder or a bishop will do. And they have joy or grief depending on the outcome of their work and the state of their charge's souls. So these are things... That we look at and say, if you aspire to this work, to this toil, if you desire this work and this toil, desire to do a good work and a good toil, keep in mind that these are some of the outcomes and the results and the necessities that are going to happen, the things that come along with that work. This uh, in Titus as well as in Timothy, uh, they parallel one another, but going back to Timothy, it says a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. We've gone through vigilant and sober, of good behavior is just that decorum. It means that he's not a scoundrel. It means that a bishop is a man who uh, can be, their example can be followed. In most things, are they ever going to make a mistake? Absolutely. Are they human? Yes. Is that why they're going to make a mistake? Yes. And their temperament enters into this as well. If you, if you line up all of the elders in the church, you find distinct personalities, strengths, weaknesses, characteristics, failures, successes, and, and, and so forth and so on. But as Paul is talking to Timothy here, he's saying they're not going to be cookie cutter men. They're going to be men who have all of the same uh, uh, characteristics in their humanness as other men, but they have a, 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 there's an aspect to this that they feel a responsibility to improve in these areas and learn things and behaviors that qualify them for this office of good behavior. Given to hospitality simply means fond of guests. I mean, not much to unpack there. I would say that it means that they enjoy people. And this doesn't mean that we have to love everybody equally in terms of our enjoyment of their character or of their personality. Recognizing that we have personality traits that just click. We've all met are some of you know are probably our best friends our people who we met we we just clicked we just see things the same way we enjoy each other's sense of humor so forth and so on nothing wrong with that but it also means that we don't automatically reject people because there's something about them that gets under our skin given to hospitality fond of guests and maybe i've extended that a little too far but how many people are you going to invite into your home for meals that and for and for fellowship uh, that you do not enjoy being around that maybe is a better um, rule of thumb or measuring stick for hospitality given the hospitality apt to teach not a whole lot to unpack there as well apt to teach Simply mean and this may be a learned behavior in some people. Apt to teach it means that they seek out those truths that are found in Scripture, those principles, and they try to uh, help their flocks to understand them in in a biblical way, in the way in which they uh, were taught, in a way in which will will enhance uh, the the the. the uh, moral and character fiber of those uh to whom they teach it's 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 helping young people to understand important aspects uh of life and to apply the biblical principles to their own life and to persuade them that yes by my experience and by my study I have learned these things and sometimes i've learned them by 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 uh the, by character of failure and 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 i'm i'm trying to get you to avoid these mistakes. Don't make these mistakes, perhaps, that I've made. Apt to teach, to convey the truths of Scripture to those as opposed to preaching or evangelizing the, the gospel message and tying the truths of Scripture to the gospel message in a way that makes, gives us a seamless worldview, Christian biblical worldview of ourselves and our place in the world, and the world's place in us. That is, that we are to keep ourselves from the world. So he says, not given to wine in verse 3. Not given to wine. Well, anybody want to argue what this means? Obviously, Paul is saying we don't want drunkards. I didn't say dunkards, I said drunkards. We don't want drunkards in the office of bishop. We don't want people who look at alcoholic beverages as something that is their next best friend, in other words. Men who are able to understand and put in its place not just wine, I believe, but anything that would come between them and God, that would keep them from being to having these other qualifications, that would displace Important aspects of their work with God, but not given to wine, so obviously not a wine bibber. And we've kind of helped take care of that by just outlawing it altogether. Not given to wine, no striker. A striker is someone who is pugnacious and quarrelsome. We don't need quarrelsome men. We've got enough quarrelsomeness in our inherent uh nature. We don't need quarrelsomeness as a personality trait in a leadership position because it's going to cause trouble within the body of Christ. Pugnaciousness, one who immediately takes, takes up a, an offensive or an offensive position whenever something comes up. Someone who's ready to brawl. Greedy, simply not not greedy, of filthy lucre. We all know what that means. We we studied that a little bit in Sunday school. The sons of Samuel went after filthy lucre, essentially. They put it over, it was more important to them than the sacred things that they were charged with as leaders in Israel. And what happened? People saw it. People saw it and rebelled against it. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient. Patient means mild, generate, moderate. I know we think of patient as being long-suffering. That's kind of not quite the same context in the Greek. It means gentle, mild, and moderate. Patient, not a brawler. Well, what's the difference between that and a striker, a brawler? A brawler is someone who is not peaceable. They don't enjoy conflict like a striker does. They're not pugnacious either. The words are similar. But a brawler is a peaceable person. It's someone who not not avoids conflict. You know, in in our day and age, we have the concept in our society of anti-racism. And it doesn't mean not to be racist. It means that you are actively not only agreeing with them as to what that means, but you are actively working against racism. And I would say that in this case, a a brawler means that we are anti-brawlers if we're going to be leaders. That is, we are actively avoiding, actively working against in our own hearts and in the lives of those of our of our. Uh, fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, we are actively working to generate and build peace and a love of peace within their hearts and minds. No brawler. And then he says, not covetous. Not covetous. Well, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Seems like it'd be a natural application to a qualification. Of a deacon or of a of, of an elder or a bishop, right? Natural, natural thing. If it's if it was good for the entire nation of Israel, it's certainly good for elders in the church. Not covetous. We're not looking at what other people have and saying, "Hmm, boy, that's nice. I'd like to have that." And then he says, "One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity." This one gets real close home, doesn't it? I said many years ago, somebody asked if I would teach about child rearing, and I said my children aren't reared yet. (laughs) And I'm not sure whether I've ever preached on that. Because it's something that is dear to my heart. And I'm not sure I did a real good job of it. I think maybe my children, if to the degree to which they've turned out godly or Christ-like, have more done it in spite of me than because of me. I'm not sure. God will be the judge of that. But I do know that he says in here, verse 4, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, And then he puts a parenthetical aside, a kind of explanation for what he's talking about. He says, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? This is a very practical aspect. And he's... (laughs) I put myself in this category, okay? But he's saying essentially, if you don't know how to rule your own children, how are you going to rule the people of God who sometimes act like children? That's just how it works. We act like children sometimes, don't we? And he says, if you don't know how to handle them when they're little, how are you going to handle a child when it gets big? They get more stubborn. They get more selfish. They get more uh, focused on things that are wrong when they get older and more stubborn than when they're little. When they're little, they sometimes recognize your authority. When they get bigger in their children, they're not even going to recognize your authority anymore. So how are you going to handle that? Got a plan? One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. There again, that having ruleth well his own house makes it sound like he's a dictator. means no such thing. It simply means that he's taking on the responsibility that God has given to him to be the head of his household, to teach his children, to teach them to value the authority that God puts into their lives. And if he fails in doing that, how is he going to build into his congregation, the church of God, how is he going to build into them a love for the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life? How is he going to teach them not to be self-centered in their relationship with Christ and put themselves on the throne and dethrone Christ? How is he going to do that? It's going to be very difficult, isn't it? Because he hasn't had enough practice or doesn't know how to do that. Easy, isn't it? Easy. Can we learn these things? Are these learned traits or behaviors or skills? Yes, some of them are. Definitely. Do we need every one of these things in every elder or bishop uh, or minister that we look at uh, electing to that position? I hesitate to say no, but I certainly hesitate to say yes. Because as I said in the opening, if we do, we probably wouldn't have any ministers or elders. So we have to use some discretion. I think as we look at this, we must look at the overall picture and say, are there, maybe we could look at it from a negative aspect. Some of these things can be learned, but there are things that we could maybe consider to be disqualifications. And this is where it gets really dicey, because when we're looking at this position and we're saying, well, I wasn't elected to this position, therefore I am disqualified. And we begin to get real sober real quick. Right? Let's go back to the first verse again. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. I think there is the key. What are we desiring and why are we desiring it? And I wouldn't even say that every man who has been put in the ministry has desired that work. Although I do believe that oftentimes we may feel the call of God in that. Probably some earlier than others. Some may not feel the call until they're called. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. I'm going to skip down to verse 6. Not not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. What was the condemnation of the devil? The devil was condemned because of his pride. That's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. The devil was condemned because of his pride. He was cast from heaven because he said, I will ascend up upon high. I will take the place of God. I will usurp God's authority. And Paul says, "Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall." There again, that goes back to that first verse where we're looking at the motivations for that desire. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. What happens uh, when? What happens if you set out to do something and you succeed at it? And you not just succeed, but you do it exceedingly well. We call that pride of work, right? Pride of accomplishment, whatever you, however you want to look at that. But pride is at the base of it. And we're, what we're saying is we're glad that we were be able to, to accomplish this thing. And the pride of that begins to uh, build up our ego. And we say we did a good thing. And Paul is saying here in this, if, a bishop rules well and does something right, maybe he's a good counselor. Maybe he saves a marriage. Hallelujah. Right. Maybe he guides a a project in some good way. He doesn't fail at that. And the thing is a resounding success. What happens? Paul says, not a novice. He needs to know himself so well. He needs to have some experience in these things well enough to recognize that when pride comes knocking at the door, he says, who is it? Oh yeah, (laughs) sorry, don't need you. Don't need what you're giving. Don't need what you're selling. Pride. Not a novice. Lest be being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Has it happened? Yes, it has. Can it happen? Yes, it can. In God's church? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it can. Moreover, it says, he must have a good report of them which are without. Now, we're saying, not only is this your evaluation of someone, but this is the, also the evaluation of those that are without. Do they? Does he have a good report of those that are without? Lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. There again, What does the community think of him? What do unbelievers think of him? We don't always know that. I recognize that. I recognize that. But we sometimes, usually what happens is, isn't this true? We hear of what they've done bad rather than what they've done good. People love to talk about people's failures. Let's face it. That's why it's called gossip. People love to talk about other people's failures. And we hear about other people's failures through the gossip lines. How many times through the gossip line just by way of measurement here. How many times through the gossip line do you hear of someone's success, of someone's character that is good? That's not what people gossip about, is it? Did you hear? Did you hear? He's honest! That's a great thing! Kind of a short conversation though, isn't it? (laughs) So gossip is about the bad. So we hear about people's bad things and we oftentimes hear that through the community. A good report of those that are without a lot of qualifications here that and we didn't even get into Titus, although it is certainly parallel and our time is up characteristically. So one of the qualifications ought to be, does he keep his sermons to proper length? (laughs) So we'll have to define proper, I guess. You know, you can always move the goalpost if they don't meet the qualifications. That's a qualification. Do they move the goalposts? So I just want to leave this with you this morning. I accurately predicted that we wouldn't get beyond verse seven, and really, we didn't get beyond verse five. But we did it. We went on anyway. Um, And and I just want to say, this is it is a very serious matter, and the reason for that is, is that. When we make decisions as a body about who we're going to put into leadership, we're making a lot of decisions that affect a lot of people down the road. Okay, this isn't for today or next week. This is down the road, and we're making decisions about uh, leadership that's going to affect someone else's life 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. When we, most of us or many of us, may not even be around. Take that responsibility upon yourself and take it seriously. Don't use selfish motivations for making decisions about these things because they are serious decisions. And that's why they're even, that's why Paul tells Timothy and Titus. That's why it's mentioned in the Acts. That's why it's mentioned in the Hebrews about these aspects of character and so forth is because it matters. It matters down the road. And it very much will characterize the body of Christ both locally and in the larger fellowship. I just want to leave this thought with you. Some of the decisions that were made 20, 30, 40 years ago have given rise to effects that some that were given leadership positions 10 or 15 years ago or less are having to deal with today. And they are heavy burdens. I just want you to keep that in mind. This isn't about me. It isn't about you. It's about the church of God. So let's keep that in mind when we make decisions about who we would offer up as leadership. We're calling men into positions of servitude, into positions of shepherding, into positions of responsibility and accountability. Let's choose wisely. May God add His blessings. (sniffs) you. <sniffs>